Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Good morning, listeners. My name is Kemley Phillip, MD-PhD. I'm a PGY2 resident at the Department of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation at the McGovern Medical School at UT Health Houston. Um, it's my privilege this morning to um, interview for our PMR Report podcast, Dr. Susan Apcon. Briefly, Dr. Apcon graduated from the University of Vermont College of Medicine in 1994. She completed her combined residency in pediatrics and physical medicine rehabilitation at the University of Colorado and Children's Hospital Colorado in 1999. Went on uh, to stay as faculty at the Children's Hospital of Colorado until 2009 when she moved to Seattle to become the Director of Pediatric Rehabilitation at Seattle Children's Hospital. She's also a Professor of Rehabilitation Medicine at the University of Washington. Her clinical interests are in the care of children with cerebral palsy and neuromuscular conditions. She's the Director of the Neuromuscular Program at Seattle Children's that houses several multidisciplinary clinics that provide care to children with a wide variety of neuromuscular conditions, including spinal muscular atrophy. Dr. Apcon has developed neuromuscular clinical trial programs at Seattle Children's. She is currently the PI on seven clinical trials focused on boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy or children with spinal muscular atrophy. She's co-author on the recently published Care Considerations for Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy, published in the Lancet Neurology uh, February of this year. And this morning, uh, for our listeners who were not uh, able to be present for Grand Rounds, she gave us a delightful lecture on spinal muscular atrophy, novel treatments, and ethical quagmires. So uh, once again, without further ado, Dr. Apcon. So to start off, for our listeners that may not be in the medical field, can you give us just a general overview of um, what is spinal muscular atrophy and the, the different types? Sure. Spinal muscular atrophy is a condition that affects the motor neurons, so they're muscle cells um, within the motor system. And when you have a disease of the motor neurons, it leads to weakness and um, floppiness, so hypotonia, and it really impacts kids and adults' ability to perform, so it impacts their motor function. So there are three types of spinal muscular atrophy. Actually, there are four types, but I'm a pediatric rehab doc, so I only take care of the child form. So infants who present before about six months of age who never have the ability to sit are considered to have type 1 SMA, the intermediate form or type two are kids who learn to sit or sit really almost at a normal age but never progress beyond that so they aren't walking or running um, and then the older kids are kids with type three they usually present after about 18 months of age they walk so we have 
non-sitters, sitters, and walkers. And the time at which they're diagnosed really reflects that. The infants are diagnosed usually by about six months of age. The kids with type two before about 18 months of age. Um, and then the kids with type three usually after 18 months of age because they started walking. And when you have spinal muscular atrophy, you have it because it's a, um, a mutation in the survivor motor neuron gene. So there are two genes that produce this protein called survivor motor neuron protein, which is needed for the viability of the motor neuron cells. And when you have SMA, you actually are missing the SMN1 gene. And so you have this backup gene called the SMN2 gene, but it's not particularly a good one. It produces only about 10% of the protein that you need for the health of those motor neurons. And so if you have SMA, you are missing that SMN1 gene which leads again to the weakness and the floppiness and those loss of milestones. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the current uh, treatment options look like for, for SMA or, and how that's changing? So the, the current treatment really is, um, is supportive care. And so kids who have SMA, depending on their type, um, may have um, more or less difficulty with swallowing or eating. And so we provide supportive care. Maybe they have something called a nasogastric tube, which is a tube in the nose into the stomach, or maybe a gastrostomy tube, so a tube into the stomach. So we can give them nutrition so they can grow. Um, most kids with spinal muscular atrophy will have something called restrictive lung disease. Because they're weak, they can't take a big breath. And so we provide them with the ability to take a bigger breath, um, and we use something called non-invasive ventilation, BiPAP. Many people know about BiPAP because of um, um, obstructive sleep apnea. And so uh, we actually use that in, in little kid forms um, to provide good support. Um, we provide some orthopedic care. If a child um, develops a scoliosis, which is a curve in the spine, and our orthopedic colleagues help with that. And then as a rehab doc, I provide equipment. So kids with SMA will need equipment. The kids with type two who don't walk need a wheelchair. Some of them are strong enough to use a manual wheelchair, a really lightweight one, so I might prescribe that. Um, but many of them require power mobility, so a power wheelchair they drive with a joystick. And so as a rehab doc, I'll prescribe that. And other equipment, if you can't sit, it's hard to take a bath, and so you need bath equipment. Um, if you can't sit well, you need a car seat that will help support you, as another example. Um, and then we provide therapy. So we want to try to maintain range of motion as best as we can. And we want to try to um, um, keep kids flexible in the hips, the knees, and the ankles. We might prescribe orthoses, braces, to help with that range of motion. And now, and as of December of 2016, we actually have the first FDA-approved drug. It's called Nusinersen. Um, the, the name that many people know it as um, is Spinraza, but Nusinersen um, was approved by the FDA to treat all types of SMA, uh, including all ages. And so kids and adults can receive this drug. It's delivered intrathecally, which means it's in the spinal fluid. And so it's um, literally a needle is placed um, uh, into the back where the spinal canal is located, and um, the medicine is delivered that way. Uh, there's seven doses over the first year, and then after that, it's every four months. And that medicine actually allows the survivor motor neuron protein to be produced again. So I said that these kids are missing the SMN1 gene, and this medicine works um, at the mutation level, and it's able to incorporate exon 7, which is just like a puzzle piece, in the gene, and allows that to be incorporated and thereby producing this protein. Can you tell us a little bit about how this new FDA-approved drug, the new Sinersen, has changed um, kind of treatment options and longevity moving forward in our, in our patients with SMA? 
Sure. So the FDA approved this drug based on a clinical trial which enrolled infants with spinal muscular atrophy. And then there's been subsequent trials um, focused on some older children. And the evidence demonstrated that kids were living longer. So infants who were treated by about six months of age weren't needing long-term ventilation, which historically was the case. Most families did not for long-term ventilation, and so the children died. The median age to death for infants with type 1 was about 10 and a half months. And now these kids are surviving and thriving um, uh, well beyond that. And then as most of us who are in the field of, of physical medicine rehabilitation know, it takes a true you know, treatment team to take care of these patients. Can you give us an idea of what that looks like for uh, your, your patients with SMA? Sure. So our neuromuscular clinic um, takes care of lots of kids and young adults with neuromuscular conditions, including Duchenne muscular dystrophy, some of the limb girdle muscular dystrophies, Friedrich's ataxia, and spinal muscular atrophy. In fact, we have a separate clinic for kids with SMA because they have um, such unique needs. And so we have a half-day clinic, uh, and our team includes a neuromuscular provider, so myself or a neurologist, a pulmonologist and a respiratory therapist, a dietitian, a physical therapist, occupational therapist, a nurse, and a social worker. And that team together um, helps to formulate a treatment plan and move it forward with the family. Um, in terms of the treatment team that we had to put together to be able to deliver nusinersen, it's a much bigger team. So um, this is an expensive medication. And before we could just dispense a medication that was about $125,000 per vial or per injection, we had to bring a team together from our pharmacy, our um, finance department, um, the different um, providers that might be doing the injections or the locations like the operating room, interventional radiology. Um, and then our therapy team as well, to be able to uh, make sure that if we were going to deliver this care, it was going to be delivered safely and effectively. And you alluded this morning to other, um, you know, investigative treatment options that are being looked at in addition to Nusinersen. Can you comment on some of those? Or? Sure. The one that's getting probably the most press right now is gene therapy. So there's a, a fantastic trial going on out of Nationwide Children's Hospital, um, and now expanding to other clinical sites across the country, looking at injecting intravenously, and, and one trial is actually intrathecally, the gene, the SMN1 gene. So it's put in a viral vector, and that's sort of the vehicle in which the gene gets into the body. And that trial, um, the early results um, are showing pretty remarkable improvements. So infants treated um, before about six months of age again are now sitting and rolling and crawling and some standing. And this is out of two years um, for some of them. And so I expect, based on those results, that the gene therapy will be approved, um, at least rumor on the street is, within the next six months. And the rumor, uh, the rumor is, um, uh, is generated by families who usually know well in advance of me what's going on. <clears throat> Can you... Um... I guess comment on some of the, the pitfalls you you feel exist with respect to the current treatment or the new treatment options. I commented on the, the cost, and I'll just yeah. start right with that. The cost is prohibitive. Maybe I shouldn't use the term prohibitive because we have been able to actually deliver care for all the kids who want the treatment. 
but it is a huge strain to the healthcare system. Um, it's a huge strain to the state insurers and to the commercial insurers and even to the hospitals because the hospitals aren't fully reimbursed for the cost to deliver this care. And so it's not just nucinersin. Um, it is all of these drugs for rare diseases where the price tags are just higher than we've ever seen before. I, I say to you know people, it's a broken system, and we have to figure that out because nucinersin is the first, gene therapy will likely be the second, but right behind are other treatments for not only kids with SMA, but for kids with other neuromuscular conditions and adults with other conditions as well. And we have to get a handle on, on how these drugs are priced and, and how they're being reimbursed. You kind of alluded at the end here how or to your knowledge, do you know if there's been any extrapolation of these same methods to other neuromuscular disorders that are under um, investigation right now? Well, there's certainly other gene therapy trials going on. And so Duchenne muscular dystrophy is the most common neuromuscular mm -hmm. condition of childhood. It affects boys, um, not primarily girls. Uh, and there are several right now gene therapy trials that are underway at various um, uh, institutions across this country. And that's taking the um, a small version of the dystrophin gene. So boys with Duchenne dystrophy are missing a protein called dystrophin, so it's a different protein, so it will be a different gene. The gene for dystrophin is massive. It's huge. It's described as one of the largest genes in the body. As a result, it can't go into a little viral vector. It's just too large. And so they're miniaturizing it. Um, Jeff Chamberlain, who is a, uh, a researcher at University of Washington, is really one of the world's experts in this microarray dystrophin gene. Uh, and he has found ways to take the most important parts of the gene and incorporate that into the virus to then uh, uh, replicate. And so um, that is gene therapy similar to an SMA. I think we will see um, uh, evolving over time. In SMA, they're also looking at other aspects of the motor unit. So they're targeting the muscle and uh, the stress at the muscle level. They're looking at the neuromuscular junction uh, as an example. And so while we focus on the motor neuron, the anterior horn cell, we're actually also looking uh, across the entire unit. So you mentioned towards the end of your talk, um, and as we know from uh, just kind of review of your own career, you've had extensive involvement in, in various clinical trials. Any advice to those of us who are um, as trainees or clinicians, clinicians you know, desiring to be clinician scientists in this field of physical medicine rehabilitation with respect to getting into um, that world or how to nav navigate the world of uh, clinical trials? I had to put myself out there. I mean, I, I was willing to be vulnerable and put myself out there and to network. And when I was at meetings, going up to people who I knew were doing the work, introducing myself, sharing my interests, my passion in, in neuromuscular conditions, uh, and then following up with them. So, you know, asking for their card, sending them an email, the next time I saw them in a meeting, um, reaching out to people who might know them and having um, that person put in a good word for me. I actually, um, the, the trial for exon skipping, so there's a, um, boys with Duchenne, there's some exon skipping drugs that help to improve um, the production of dystrophin. And it was a parent who I, um, talk to to put in a good word because she for another reason was working with a particular company and so I had her talk me up which was a little different but I, I actually think it worked I think that as a result I was able to get three clinical trials 
looking at exon skipping for boys um, with Duchenne dystrophy. Um, and so I would encourage people to just, you know, when you find that passion to really, um, to move, move on it, to, to reach out to others, to make yourself vulnerable. And um, we have a small, quirky field. That's how I describe rehab. Small, quirky field, um, but it's a fabulous field. And I think we have so much to offer. You know, these clinical trials are, they, the outcome measures are frequently function-based measures. Who better to be involved with these clinical trials in a rehab doc to help them understand really what an addition of 50 or 60 or 100 meters means to someone on a six-minute walk test. And so I think also leveraging your expertise as a, a rehab physician is also going to be important in, in getting involved with those. And along the same lines, when it comes to just research in general, whether it be basic science, translational, clinical research, anything that you've learned, kind of looking back, not just limited to SMA, but um, the other neuromuscular diseases or your bone health um, research experience, any advice for, for um, our families as well, patient families that may be listening? Um, for, as from a professional standpoint, so as a, uh, for a, a resident or a fellow or a junior faculty that's just starting, um, I would encourage people to really partner with people doing the work initially. I think, I think back to the first clinical trial that I participated in um, when I was um, a physician in Denver. It was a, a Adeloran clinical trial. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think back to how we set that trial up. And it was a, it was a multi-center trial, so we didn't design the trial or anything like that, but we had to do the budgeting, go through the IRB process. And I think the, the way that we did it then and the way I do it now is completely different. Uh, had I partnered with someone that was doing clinical research, I think it would have gone much more smoothly. Um, and it doesn't have to be another rehab physician or someone doing neuromuscular medicine. It could have been someone who's doing cystic fibrosis clinical trials, because there's a lot of them, or oncology clinical trials. Um, and really learning from people who are doing that work is really important. And so that would be my advice. Um, if you are a junior faculty or a fellow and there are, is a clinical trials program within your department, volunteer to be um, uh, one of the evaluators. Uh, your name's not going to appear on any manuscript. M my name frequently doesn't appear on any manuscript. And that's okay. right? You're doing it to gain some experience. Ultimately, you're doing it to be able to provide care to those kids. So that's important. From a family perspective, as I think about clinical trials and as I talk to families about clinical trials, um, I really try to help them understand what it means. I describe a clinical trial as an experiment because I think experiment resonates a little bit better with a family than a clinical trial. And when I describe an experiment, um, I describe what a placebo control means. Um, I still to this day don't fully um, believe that our families, um, when they sign that informed consent, fully understand what randomized placebo control means. Um, and so helping as best as you can um, using that teach back method. So giving a family information, having them give it back to you. Um, and that's not to say at all that families are incredibly bright and engaged um, in understanding this. It's, there's a lot of hope that's attached to this trial. And so I think that that sometimes um, 
move someone in maybe um, a different direction in terms of uh, the, the way that they're going to think about that trial. The other thing for families is it's a burden, and I don't take using that word lightly. Um, the amount of time, energy, and even money that's spent on participating in a clinical trial is high. Now, families don't pay out of pocket to get these drugs in clinical trials. They don't pay out of pocket or their insurance company doesn't pay for them to have the labs drawn or have the function testing that we're doing. But it doesn't pay for the mom or dad to bring them to that weekly infusion. That's part of that clinical trial or the every three month visit to do the time function testing. That's time that they're missing from work. That's maybe additional babysitting hours they're having to pay for their other couple of kids. And also the emotional um, time it takes. Um, when you really sit down and think about that weekly infusion maybe for a clinical trial that you're doing and realizing that your kid may not really be getting the drug over two years, that emotional burden um, is also high. And this is things, these are things that families tell me. I've observed for sure, but these are things when I sit down with families, I have a lot of time to spend with families because of they're, they're, they're frequently in clinic for the trials. Um, and so I've learned from them, watching them and, and listening to them. Um, and so it's really important for families to understand what it means to be part of a clinical trial. Something else that you hit on uh, towards the end there, can you give our listeners kind of an in, insight into um, maybe some anecdotal evidence with your own patients with respect to kind of what you're seeing with um, with respect to their outcomes after the the new nurse for example or or just rehabilitation alone yeah. the the experience that we've had treating kids with nusenersen has been similar to the outcomes that we're seeing published from the original clinical trials so we have four infants that we're caring for and um, not only are they surviving now well past a year of age, but they're thriving. They're sitting independently, something we would never have expected. Some of the kids are eating and, and talking uh, as well. Again, skills we just won't expect a child with SMA type one. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, children with type three. So those are the kids who walk. And um, we do, our outcome measures for the kids who walk are different. We do time function testing and something called a six minute walk test. So we have a race course that we tell the kids to start walking and we time them for six minutes and then we count how many meters that they walk. Um, other time function tests might be time to get up off the ground. That's really hard if you have weakness uh, around your, your, your hips um, or climbing four stairs. And what we've seen on the six minute walk test, for example, are significant improvements in their six minute walk test at, at three and four months and maintaining that at six months and a year. Um, and when I say significant, we're talking increases of 100 meters, uh, 150 meters, and anything beyond, usually we think about 30 meters is considered significant. Um, so that's been really uh, pretty spectacular to see. The kids with intermediate types, so the kids who have type two SMA, those who sit but don't walk, um, have also demonstrated improvements. We have different outcome measures for them. Um, and we've seen kids who um, tell us that they are able to get their arm up on an armrest now when their arm falls off from their uh, power wheelchair. They're able to lift um, a heavier cup or glass or a full bottle of Gatorade instead of just a little bit of Gatorade. Uh, or just two weeks ago, a nine-year-old boy who um, talked about how when he used to throw, he's crazy into sports, 
And when he used to throw the baseball to his dad, it would hit his dad at about knee level, and now it hits him at chest level. And that was his measure of improvement. Uh, and beyond those anecdotes, you know, the sort of subjective measurements, we do objective tests. Um, and on objective testing, they also have improved um, in upper body strength primarily. Wonderful. <clears throat> Can you uh, kind of comment on you know, how, how you think the <clears throat> treatment of neuromuscular disorders is changing moving forward or kind of where you see this going, looking at future directions? I think it's just going to continue to evolve. The, if I think back to 20 years ago, around the time I started my um, career as a junior faculty member to today, it really is, it's very different. Um, and even before novel treatments, life expectancy for a boy with Duchenne dystrophy is improving as it is for kids with spinal atrophy. Our pulmonary colleagues have completely changed the way that they're, uh, we're able to care for kids with restrictive lung disease, the use of non-invasive ventilation, the use of something called a cophesis machine has completely changed the way that we manage kids who have respiratory infections. Um, again, better nutrition, um, cardiac care, so boys with Duchenne dystrophy have heart, fun, um, heart muscle involvement, so they develop cardiomyopathies. We're able to treat kids pre-symptomatically and then if they develop symptoms post-symptomatically. So the aggressive cardiac care, again, has really changed the way um, that, these, that these children um, are doing. In terms of the novel treatments, which I talked about with nusinersen and gene therapy for kids with SMA, it's 10 times that for boys with Duchenne dystrophy. Uh, in terms of the number of trials. Um, they're looking at the mutation level, uh, they're looking at the muscle level, gene therapy as another example. They're looking at decreasing fibrosis, increasing something called myos um, decreasing something called myostatin to improve muscle regeneration. They really are targeting this condition uh, from every different angle. And we're seeing that also, clinical trials for kids with myotonic dystrophy, um, Friedrich's ataxia. Um, and so, you know, we have become a smarter medical research community. Um, the technology that we have today is completely different from what we had 20 years ago. And I only expect that to expand. I didn't even mention CRISPR because I can't quite wrap my <laughs> I can't quite wrap my arms around these, you know, these genetic scissors, yeah. which is crazy to think about. But CRISPR in the setting of SMA and in the setting of uh, Duchenne dystrophy is that's they're working on this. I mean, they're not yet in clinical trial, but it's an animal model. So there are animal models for both SMA and Duchenne, and so these technologies, these novel treatments, right now are in you know at the animal level. They're they're looking at it. Can you tell us how you think moving forward rehabilitation with respect to to PMNR for these patients is changing? I think that we don't really know how to prescribe rehabilitation um, for kids who are getting these treatments. I think that we're much more aggressive and proactive. We tended, not just we as rehab providers, but as a, a medical community, caring for kids with neuromuscular conditions, we were a little bit more reactive. Um, we knew hips were gonna come out of sockets and there was nothing we really could do to put them in, as an example, uh, in a child with spinal muscular atrophy. And I think that we are much more proactive now. 
Um, we're trying to maintain in a very young age range of motion. So getting kids into standing, doing hands-on range of motion, using orthoses uh, in ways that we didn't use orthoses. And even in those infants with type one, especially in those infants with type one, we are getting therapy involved. It used to be for positioning, helping families learn to hold their infants and supporting their incredibly floppy heads and trunks. And now we're working on developmental skills with these kids. Um, and um, I think that as a rehab community, we really um, need to step up to the plate. We really need to be involved in this. We need to um, lead the efforts um, in terms of identifying what that right dosing is. I know the right dose of a Tylenol or the right dose of Motrin, but I don't really know the right dose of physical therapy or the right dose of occupational therapy. And I think we need to really focus our efforts on that. Kind of looking back in your own training, career, kind of where you are with respect to, to research and clinical trials, what has this meant to you at the, at the end of the day? You kind of hit on kind of the personal um, note at the end of your, your talk there before our listeners. Uh, I love taking care of patients and families. I mean, that is why I got into medicine and rehab medicine specifically. I describe myself as a quality of life doc. I think rehab docs focus on quality of life more so than anyone else. And so for me, as I look back at what I've been able to do um, throughout the almost 20 years now that I've been in um, rehab medicine, and look at where we are today with these novel treatments, it's just really quite amazing. I mean, I really, I, I, I warn our residents and fellows when I'm gonna walk into a room now of one of these infants who we're treating that I may cry, and I'm not a crier, mm -hmm. but to be able to see these kids sitting and, and talking and eating is just amazing. I just, going back to, you know, I got my start um, in this world taking care of infants with SMA who died. That was, that was the course that they had, um, and um, to see these same infants now um, is just really quite remarkable and such a privilege. It's amazing to be part of the medical community and to be part of these families' lives and these kids' lives and to be able to deliver this treatment. I mean, it really is, um, has just been really uh, inspiring and humbling and um, I wouldn't change anything. So it sounds like no regrets or anything as far as lessons learned. I know you said you wouldn't change anything. But... That's a really hard question. <laughs> of course, there's always going to be things. There's always going to be things that you know I might have done differently, and and so forth. But I'm really I'm I'm proud of, you know I, I'm proud of, of what we um, as a team at Seattle Children's um, have been able to accomplish um, in in providing care to kids with SMA and, and other neuromuscular conditions. I um, feel fortunate um, every day I walk into work, and so right now. At the top of my head, I can't think of anything that I would change. <laughs> well, Dr. Abkhan, thank you so much again um, for, for coming to our Distinguished Lecture Series and Grand Rounds. We are all still in awe of the work that you and your team do at um, Seattle Children's and University of Washington. Um, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen, as we close another session of our podcast, I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.